This is top landing gear. Hello and welcome to Top Landing Gear and a bonus episode to accompany our podcast about the 1969 Daily Mail Great Atlantic Air Race. In that edition, we spoke to the fastest competitor of everyone in the race, Lieutenant Commander Peter Goddard, who made a record-breaking crossing of the Atlantic in a Royal Navy Phantom to claim the Vickers Alcock and Brown Trophy. Remember, this race was staged to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Alcock and Brown's first ever non-stop flight across the Atlantic in 1919. But there was more than one winner in 1969, as there were 360 competitors in 21 different categories to race from the top of the post office tower to the top of the Empire State Building in New York, or in the other direction, the post office tower known now as the BT Tower. The race lasted for a week. You could race as many times as you liked in either direction. But this evening, we're thrilled to be joined by someone else who took part in the race, not as a race entrant, but as a pilot flying a winner in one of the numerous civilian categories. We're delighted to welcome as our top landing gear air race bonus guest, former BOAC VC-10 pilot, Rolf Richardson. Rolf, a very, very <laughs> warm welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Just before you tell us your story, let me just introduce you to the team here. There's me, Rob Curling. We've spoken a lot. There's Roy Stride, pop star from Scouting for Girls. Uh, my brother, Jez Curling, an agricultural fencer. It's a long story to explain that one. James Cartner, Hello. Uh, a pilot, a pilot of sorts. But, but Rolf, <laughs> you were with the BOAC at the time of the race, flying the gorgeous VC-10. How did you actually get involved in it all? Well, <clears throat> my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, Peter Hammond, was the uh, organiser. And uh, he, it's a long story, but he had a, a club called the Green Diamond Club. Started off as a skiing club, broadened into all sorts of uh, other leisure activities, sailing and so on, windsurfing, which meant that he had a lot of people available. And he thought it'd be fun to go in for the, one of the categories on a scheduled airliner. Uh, and so he organised it. Peter uh, worked for the Port of London Authority at the time. Uh, he found this, shall we say, rather less than challenging. He had time on his hands and uh, he loved organising things. Uh, and so he got his team together, which encompassed, I don't know how many people, but an awful lot of people, uh, who basically organised the ground part. That's to say from the top of the Empire State Building to JFK. And when we got to uh, London, from uh, Heathrow to the post office tower. I was just the middle bit, if you like, <coughs> the, f the flying bit. <coughs> and uh, all uh, it, it, it's a Daily Mail air race. It got a lot of publicity. Everybody was very keen to be involved because it was, if you like, free publicity. And BOAC uh, were very good. And uh, Peter and my brother-in-law contacted BOAC and said, you know, would they be prepared to... Uh, uh, have uh, myself and my brother-in-law, also a pilot, we're two first officers at that stage, not captains, uh, take part in this. 
And so uh, there were, the, that's three brother brothers-in-law on the same flight. Is that right? Uh, not on the same flight. Uh, you're quite right. There was my wife's brother was organising it, and my <laughs> my sister's husband. This is a bit complicated. <laughs> he was he was another pilot, uh, right. and so there were two of us, Jed and myself, uh, who were on the VC10, and we we tossed up for it. And I, I won to do the uh, actual flying. Uh, BOC had to get a captain who was agreeable to this. And yeah. they, fa- they found a very nice guy called Tommy Thompson, who uh, entered into the, the spirit of things. Uh, and basically, uh, we, the three of us, uh, flew the BC-10 from uh, New York to London. Oh, how absolutely fantastic. I might just have to explain at this juncture, uh, Rolf, how I got hold of this story, because it came through your son-in-law, yet another family connection, That's who right. is a great friend and work colleague of mine, the TV sports commentator, Matt Chilton. <laughs> and it was only because I mentioned that I was about to start up this aviation podcast. He said, oh, you must interview my father-in-law because he won the Daily Mail Air Race. I thought, no, that was won by a Harrier or a Royal Navy Phantom. And I had no idea that there were all these civilian entries and you know 360 competitors in 21 categories i don't think many people today are aware of that but it it was a it was a fantastic piece of organization by the daily mail what was the boec's attitude to the race on your part in it sounded like they were quite supportive oh very supportive Uh, remember this was fantastic free publicity for anybody who took part and uh, so they they laid down a few ground rules the main one being that we were, if we were ready to depart on time from JFK, we were to do so. That's to say, mm-hmm. if Peter uh, mistimed his uh, travel time between the Empire State Building and the airport, and he arrived after seven o'clock in the evening, and we were ready to go, we had to go. <laughs> and we accepted this. Uh, we, we couldn't hold up. This is an all-passenger flight. Mm-hmm. So we it was a normal, a normal revenue flight, basically. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so we, we had to, uh, if we were ready, which we were, <clears throat> uh, but the great thing was, in those days, there was no security. This was the <laughs> last year of innocence, if you like, before uh, all the uh, anti-terrorist uh, security operations came in. And you were able to just buy a ticket, walk on an aeroplane, that's it. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> what, what a dream world. I know. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, Peter had uh, arranged things at his end. Uh, from, from New York, he got a motorbike, etc. And uh, he arrived as we were shutting the doors, uh, literally at midnight GMT. That was seven o'clock in the evening, New York time. <laughs> Uh, they piled him in. To, we we didn't know this. We well, we knew he was on, but uh, uh, that's all. And then he sat in the back, and we took him to Heathrow, where the other half uh, happened. He got on, of course, got off before anybody else, and mm. he was whisked away for the ground part, which uh, has been covered in detail. Uh, I expect you've seen it, uh, Rob. The, 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 the he's done a very good. Uh, video of this, uh, of the, the way they got him from the airport uh, to the post office tower. Yeah, uh, it's a wonderful, it's a mm. wonderful sort of. It's like a cine film, isn't it? But it's very yeah, well produced. Right. 
which we'll, well see if uh, if we can put up on on social media. We'll come come on to that a little bit later down the line. Yeah. Well, for you, um, it sounds like it was pretty touch and go whether you were actually going to collect Peter before you had to. I mean, were you getting slightly worried that it wasn't after all this he was going to miss the flight? Well, he, he could have. It, the problem was that he didn't know precisely how long it was going to take from the Empire State Building to JFK. Now, if he left too early, that would eat into his, his total time. Mm, On the other hand, if he left it too late, he risked missing the, missing the flight. <laughs> and he actually timed it perfectly. At the other end, it wasn't, it wasn't quite so difficult because all he had to do then was to uh, get his ground uh, system working and just go. Yeah. I, I've looked up at the detail of this trip and from the Empire State Building, a, a fellow club member radioed ahead to a team down on the ground at the bottom of the State Building to stop traffic outside on 34th Street <laughs> so that his motorcycle ride would be unencumbered on his way to West 30th Street, where the heliport was, he took a jet ranger to the airport. And as you said, Rolf, a car then delivered him absolutely to the aircraft steps. That total mm. journey from clocking out of the top of the Empire State Building to boarding your VC-10 mm. was 16 one six yeah. minutes. That's yeah. extraordinary, amazing. isn't it? It is amazing. Um, um, yeah. was, was this from what is now JFK? Was it Idlewild at the time? Uh, yeah, um, it was JFK, Idlewild, yes, but, yeah, but there, was, were, yeah. there was no uh, security, as I say, he just came on the aeroplane. Yeah. Well, for your, had you briefed your uh, your regular passengers about what was happening and were they sort of kind of excited about the prospect? I don't, I don't think they were told, no. What we did do, of course, we really opened up the taps and went as fast as we could. <laughs> um, now... The, the, the VC-10 we normally cruise in those days at 0.86 Mac. Uh, that was in the days before the uh, fuel uh, uh, price went up. Now you've cr cruised generally at about 8.4 or something like that. But I, I don't know wh what speed we got up to, but we, we, we absolutely gobbled up the fuel. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, once, once you start getting above your normal cruising speed, fuel consumption goes up hugely. Mm. Uh, oh. But, you know, we had enough. Uh, and uh, <laughs> air, air traffic control, very supportive. They joined in the fun. And uh, when we arrived uh, uh, near London, we got priority treatment. Uh, so, you know, we, they, we had special treatment into no, no stacking, nothing at all. Brilliant. Did, your, did your cabin crew have to put that... <laughs> Have a bit of a hurry up on the cabin service. <laughs> no, it, after all, it, 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 take, it took six hours and 20 minutes. You know, people are sleeping most of the time. So, yeah. okay. so that was a, there was a flight time of six hours 20. Yeah. That's what it was. I'm just having a look at my logbook to see if I've got any uh, JFK <laughs> Heathrows to see what it, what it compares with. I'll get back to you. The, the problem was that the upper winds were very, very poor. That's to say, normally you could get, uh, count on a fairly nice tailwind but we had virtually no tailwind components. Uh, and this is why uh, Peter did it again later on in the week when uh, the tailwinds were beginning to pick up. And he, he actually posted almost exactly the same time. Yeah, now I've read about this, Rolf, in, in a, a wonderful <laughs> book by Peter Bostock about the race. And, and he mentions that the, the crew that Peter had for his second attempt which was actually the final day of the race, still a BOAC VC-10, yeah. but he had just an ordinary flight crew. Now, Correct. I thought that was a very interesting point to make. Well, ordinary in the sense that they, uh, 
it was just an ordinary flight. They would have cruised at Mach age six or whatever it was. Uh, they wouldn't have opened the taps. They had no preferential treatment from air traffic control. Made a huge difference. Yeah. Did you bend the rules a bit? No, no. We, we can cruise at whatever speed we like. Uh, in those days, you could. Now, now it would be different, of course. Now there are all sorts of rules. Yeah. And, and what about when he actually boarded the aircraft at JFK or Idlewild? What, would you, were engines running at that stage or did you have to wait for him to board before you started up? I can't remember whether I, I, I think we still we probably had the pushback system, of the, 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 you know, on a pier. I can't remember. But yeah. uh, we, we were we were going uh, as you know, we we're about to go as he got on. Rolf, was there, um, we, we, we discussed with um, Peter Goddard, our phantom pilot, mm. navigator. Observer. Observer, yeah. <laughs> um, last, last week about inter-service rivalry. Mm. Uh, but was there some inter-VC-10 rivalry between you and <clears throat> other VC-10s, either military or civilian? Not really. What did happen, though, uh, we had, as a we, there was a, an anniversary get-together, you probably read about it, uh, of the race uh, at Brooklands. Do you read about this? That was last year. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And one of the people I met there was a bloke called Phil Hogg. Now, I, bet, I think you remember his name, Rob. He was yeah. another, another uh, BOAC British Airways uh, pilot. And he was on a flight that BOAC put on as really a publicity stunt. And they officially took part in the air race but uh, as a giggle, and they had a whole group of uh, uh, people in bowler hats. You know, it, oh, it, it, yeah. it, uh, they, they used the publicity, if you like, of the event to, to, to get a bit of free publicity for the. But it, they, they, were, they weren't serious about it. They weren't actually racing. But they yeah. did. So there was a lot of interest in the whole thing. I'm right, just, yeah, I'm just reading a quote here, actually, that says, um, by you, it says, we did not go balls out to start with. <laughs> no, no. Some, somebody else did that. We we tended to go fairly fast all the time. Uh, there was somebody else who who went rather too fast to begin with, and then had to throttle back because they were running out of gas. <laughs> yeah. I've just looked at my my quickest or a, a recent time, uh, JFK to Heathrow, six hours forty. Well, yeah, you was, slow coach. Yeah. Well, that was a pretty, pretty. It, sometimes it's well over seven hours. Yes. So yeah. it, it, but it did. It does vary a huge amount because the upper winds, as you know, can vary enormously. Yes. Uh, you can get a hundred knot tailwinds or or zero. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting during that whole week in May, nineteen sixty nine, Rolf. The the winds were all over the place and actually they were blowing more favorably for the east-west route from London. In fact, Sheila Scott, who was a, yeah. a you know a very well-known aviator in her day, she broke her own east-west transatlantic record mm. by over four hours in her Piper Comanche. So the My. winds really yeah. uh, caused havoc, I think. Yes, they, they were very untypical, I would, I would say that, yeah. Yeah. And did you know, Rob, I'm sure you did, your VC-10, the VC-10 you flew that day, uh, Golf Charlie, G-A-S-G-C, Super VC-10, mm. was actually the fastest ever subsonic airliner until uh, a jumbo broke the record actually earlier this year, courtesy of uh, Storm Kira, I think it was. But yeah, it was that very aircraft that um, took just five hours and one minute between JFK oh, really? 
and Prestwick actually back in 1974. So you yeah. had the fastest VC10 anyway. Really? Yeah. Well, it, it depends entirely on the upper wings because every, everybody cruises at roughly the same speed. Mm. So. Uh, <clears throat> and um, how, did, how did the VC10 operate on that? I mean, going a little bit faster than normal. I assume it all <laughs> sure worked perfectly normally. Didn't give, give any complaints oh, yes. or anything? Well, uh, one of the things I looked up, uh, talking of how fast you can push a jet, is that people people always think of Concorde as being the first supersonic jet, but in fact the first one was a DC-8, and that <laughs> that was that was uh, flown supersonically for 16 minutes by uh, a Douglas test pilot. Uh, so, so if if you really want to push it, uh, even an ordinary jet, if you, if you're really crazy, you, you wouldn't do it normally. But test, mm. test pilots do crazy things. So was it going fact, downhill? Uh, well, he, oh, absolutely. I mean, he, 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 he deliberately went up. He, went, he got up to something like 40,000 feet, mm. stuck the nose down full power. Uh, so it can be done, you know. It's, uh, it's... And, and even in the VC-10, you must have been almost transonic, particularly at the higher end of the, of the sort of speed regime. You, you must have sort of having the start, the start, the sort of first burbles of, of supersonic on yeah. the wing. Well, this is the problem with operating all... Uh, airliners is that once mm. you start getting beyond the round of, depends on the aircraft round about 0.8687 you start getting a little bit of compressibility over the wings and that starts to bring in a huge amount of drag very very quickly mm. and this is why uh, airliners when the uh, fuel uh, started costing a lot of money 1973 big fuel crisis everybody started pulling their speeds trimming the speeds a little bit back mm. uh, to more economical yeah, how interesting. Um, Ralph, Peter, you, just um, sorry, sorry, Ralph. What was your entry into the airlines? Were you uh, did you come out of the forces or yes. were you a, a civilian entry? <clears throat> Almost all of my generation were trained in the forces. We had national service. I started actually at school because uh, there's a lovely scheme called flying scholarship where uh, the government paid for you to get a private pilot's license. So this was great. Uh, and I have, uh, here, where are we? Uh, here, my aviator certificate. Oh, I love it. It was 1951, and it's number two, 27,211. And it got my <laughs> private pilot's license. Where uh, did you do um, that? Uh, at, 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 down at uh, Southampton, Eastley. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, on a Tiger Moth. What a lovely uh, place oh. to learn to fly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, then then I went and had, like everybody, I had to do my two years national service. And this was Korean wartime. They wanted more cannon fodder. So you could get pilot training in two years. So uh, this is what I did. And I was very lucky. I finished on Meteors. Had a, had a great time. So at the time, Meteors must have been the first jets, first operational yeah. jets that we, that we ever that we actually flew. Well, the Meteor was, was actually flying at the tail end of the war. Uh, and by the time I got there, I was through in 1953, it was coming towards the end of its life, really. Okay, right, yeah. But it, it, was the, it was the standard fighter, if you like, for mm -hmm. the RAF, yeah. What was it like going on to Meteors, uh, Rolf? Because it had a rather high attrition rate, didn't it? I, someone actually mm -hmm. tweeted only today, a guy called Chris Bolton, comes out with lots of interesting stats, that a total of 890 Meteors were lost in RAF yeah. service. 145 of those occurred in the year you were on. <laughs> yeah, I know. Blame, in 1953, <clears throat> and 450 deaths. 
It 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 did. Uh, people forget, you know, that if you're flying, uh, it happens in wartime as well. If you're flying a frontline aircraft, whether it be a bomber or a fighter, a, a, a lot of the accidents and deaths actually are accidents that they're not due to any enemy action at all. Um, mm. Simply because uh, a military aircraft is is built to do a particular role where, where safety isn't the, the first priority. Mm. Uh, and yes, you're right. I mean, on, on the conversion course that I did, we were there for three months. We had uh, three fate, fatal accidents, one a month, basically. Uh, <laughs> and there, there weren't that many people. You know, we had, I don't know how many, but, but yeah, the Meteor had a bit of a reputation, but it was great fun to fly. And didn't it struggle with, because its <laughs> engines are so widely spaced on the wing, you have, if you'd lost an engine, yeah. you were you had ter terrific problems. That, that was, the problem was not so much that, but the fact that we trained for losing an engine. Now, jet oh. engines are very reliable, and the chances of actually losing one at a critical time were very, very slight. But to guard against this, to train you know, for this happening, you did a lot of uh, engine failures, uh, practice engine failures or takeoff. And this was very difficult because uh, the Meteor was not power controlled. You had the old uh, cables, it was mm -hmm. manual control. And if you lost an engine on one side, it was almost impossible physically to keep it straight. Uh, you, it was a knee wobbler. You sort of knee. You, you try to lock your knee, and, and, and you know, keep, uh, you know. So this is one of the reasons, and uh, all, there are all sorts of reasons for it. You ran out of fuel very, very quickly. You, you had uh, a, a, an endurance of about fifty minutes uh, on a normal tankage, and about an hour and five minutes if you had ventral tanks. Uh, and uh, if you got beyond this, you know, you just had to put it down the field somewhere. That's extraordinary. Wow. So did you uh, did you do your two years national service on the meters and then go no, into well, the to the airlines or was there a not really no <clears throat> uh, the, the, my last three months of uh, national service they 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 decided it wasn't worth training us anymore because we were going out you know they were spending more money on us we we were ready and you know for the being World War Three we were more or less ready to go uh, so I finished up in in Germany at Second Tactical Air Force attached to the intelligence branch, would you believe? Uh, and that was fascinating because Germany in 1953, only eight years after the war, was a bit of a mess. Yeah. Uh, but it was, you know, I, I, I've been back to Germany umpteen times since and I, I had a great time. I travelled a lot because I had a lot of leave and so I'd potter off and uh, just see a bit of Germany. It was absolutely wonderful. Amazing. And so that was a, that was a ground job there, I take it? Yes, it was a ground job, but it was, yeah. it was interesting because it was yeah. totally chaotic. Uh, <laughs> how people could call themselves uh, intelligence is the least, least intelligent <laughs> thing I've ever come across. Uh, uh, but it was, it was interesting. And then I didn't actually go into aviation in, initially because I was going to be a vet. Uh, but I decided after a term I wasn't going to be a vet. So no. uh, it, I, it was a bit of a hiatus. And I didn't join uh, BOC until 1956, which was about two and a half years later. I did a variety of jobs then. Uh, if, you like, also, if, you, if you like the back end of horses, I suppose the aviation is the place to be, really, isn't it? <laughs> it well, one, <laughs> one of the problems with, with civil aviation then was they weren't actually taking people uh, until about the mid-50s. When mm. I left the RAF, there was very few jobs going, simply because they were living on the fat of the wartime generation. Uh, mm. You can imagine, in 1945, there were umpteen thousand people 
who are trained pilots, you know, very, very experienced guys. A lot of them wanted to go into civil aviation, limited amount of opportunity. Uh, and this lasted for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. But suddenly, in the mid-50s, suddenly they needed people again. And who did they call on? The National Service Generation. And we were lucky. We were there, ready and waiting. It took us about three months, that's all, to get our civil tickets, and we were away. What was the first type you flew with BOAC, Rolf? Uh, flew an Argonaut. Now, do you know what an Argonaut was? Oh. Is that a DC-4? Uh, it, yeah, well done. It's a D, well, it, it's a DC-4, but it was made in Canada by Canadair, and oh. it had Mer, Mer, Rolls-Royce Merlin engines in. So it's a, a real Mongol. So that was a tail dragger, was it? Mm-hmm. No, nose wheel. It was the nose wheel one, was it? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, yes, no, yes, nose wheel. It, <clears throat> but the, the it, it it was very underpowered, and it was actually only a stopgap because we'd lost the Comet One. Do you remember the Comet One mm, from the yeah. blue path? Yeah, it happened in the early fifties, <clears throat> and uh, they they found themselves BOC suddenly found themselves with lacking capacity, uh, so they had to replace it somehow, and they bought a whole heap of uh, of Argonauts. Uh, but in those days, we all flew we, BOC flew. All American. We had the Stratocruiser, mm-hmm. the yeah. Constellation One Four Nine, and uh, the uh, D- Douglas Seven Seas. So these are the seven American, three American <laughs> type airplanes plus the Argonaut. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the Britannia came along, and that's the first airplane I really spent a lot of time on. And I flew mm-hmm. the Britannia for, for six years. That was quite a complex aircraft when it came in, wasn't it? It was quite a, a well, beast to handle. <laughs> I've written a few books and things that we, which we were talking about earlier on. And one yeah. of them covers the Britannia. I, I reckon it was built by a, a team of mad professors. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the things that went on there were totally unbelievable. It looked mm. a perfectly ordinary aeroplane. Yeah. But uh, it, 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 was, it had more uh, crazy ideas for square inch than any other aeroplane that's ever been built. <laughs> Can you give us a few? Yeah, yes. OK. Well, the most, the most famous one, uh, it was... Uh, the, the PR guys called it the Whispering Giant, but yeah. in fact it was known as the Hiccuping Heap because <laughs> uh, they, they discovered very late in the day when they took it down for tropical trials that if they got into the wrong sort of cloud, the uh, engines would flame out. What happened was that the, uh, the uh, ice spilled up in a U2, and when the ice got too big, it would break off and it would just douse the engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, flames will go out. Uh, now you, you can relight an engine fairly easily, but it takes a little bit of time. It's not a very, you know, satisfactory state of affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they built in two, what I call sticking parts of solutions. Uh, one was to try and stop this happening in the first place, and the other thing was we they brought in uh, an automatic relight. So if the engine was, you know, did go out, there was a bang and a nice bit of flame out the back. Uh, and this is the, the you know the hiccuping heap, uh, so that's that, that was the first problem. The other pro- big problem we had was I think it's the only aircraft I've ever known <clears throat> which was designed without integral fuel tanks. Now normally you, st- you stash the fuel in the wings and you 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 know you, you seal up the wing the the, 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 the the gaps there. Not Bristol. They said no no no. We're going to have fuel bags. That's to say you had a big rubber bag. And you, they put this in these, you know, uh, in the interior of the wings with studs, uh, and you filled the, the bags. Now the problem there was, of course, the bags would start leaking. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we had endless fuel bag 
changes. And you can imagine that if this happened in Karachi where there's yeah. temperatures 40 degrees centigrade, poor little chaps trying to get in a very confined space, trying to refit a fuel bag, uh, uh, and <clears throat> also the, the control system was mad as well. Uh, they, they, they decided not to go for um, power supply, hydraulic fuel uh, controls, which everybody else was beginning to do at that stage. Uh, instead, if you watch the Britannia sitting on the ground ready for takeoff, everything was drooping. Uh, this yeah. is because the controls, uh, the, the main controls were co <clears throat> weren't, co weren't connected to anything. <clears throat> what you actually controlled were the tabs on the end of the controls. Oh, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, which actually worked pretty well, but it was a very, very strange system. Anyway. I, uh, I've flown a British aircraft that has a very similar system uh, mm -hmm. on the, the 146. Oh, yeah. You, you fly the tabs, not oh, really? the on the tail. And that yeah. it is the weirdest thing, following one of your own types out and seeing mm -hmm. it, you say, is it supposed to look like that? For the uninitiated, can you just explain what you mean by flying it on the tabs? It's a trim, de trim device. Uh, right. Your main control surfaces, you know, elevated air ones and so on. Um, it, 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 you, you need to uh, have a, a, a secondary control, if you like, because otherwise the actual uh, physical movements on the main can get very, very heavy. Uh, ah. And so what you do, you have a, a trim wheel, which means that, you, you know, what, whatever you're doing, because centre of gravity moves, centre of pressure moves, all sorts of things move during the flight. Uh, and to take account of that, uh, the, you have to, uh, you, you don't want to be holding back a, a control column all the time just to keep straight and level. And so you do yeah. this by uh, controlling a, a, a control service on a control service. It's a sort of secondary control service, if you like. The Britannia, I had no idea about the Britannia. I always thought it was the most beautiful aircraft and, oh, and was, was perfect. I'd know, I'd, but I didn't know it was a nightmare to fly. <laughs> but that, it, is, that is fascinating. It, it flew, it, it handled beautifully. When it flew, it was lovely. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't fly a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And so then you went on to VC-10s, did you? Yeah. Well, yeah. That must have been a bit of a step up. That was lovely, of course. VC-10 was well built, worked well, absolutely fantastic. Looks great. So yeah. to go back to the race um, then, Rolf, I'm just pick you up on that comment you made about the bowler-hatted team who oh, were yeah. also in a BOAC VC-10. It was it's a lovely story that because it, it was chartered or I don't know if it was chartered because it was a it was a scheduled flight but it was the whole operation was led by a businessman called Ted Drury, okay and it was this bowler hat brigade 120 fellow businessmen calling <laughs> themselves the British Export Sales Team yeah and they all dressed identically in pinstripe suits bowler <laughs> hats an umbrella in one hand and a briefcase in another ready to do business abroad and yeah. apparently it was a very very successful operation yeah, some of them didn't right. even come back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> much, yeah, to their wives, much to their wives' disappointment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Rolf, you have then successfully crossed the Atlantic in, a, in an amazing time, especially considering the, the lack of help you got by the upper winds of 6,020. You then came straight into Heathrow, did you? Oh, yes. Well, the, they gave us priority. So you went straight in, fast as you could. Uh, and at that point... Uh, and the runner, the competitor, your brother-in-law, was he allowed to be first off the aircraft? Oh, rather, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and yes. then I understand that he he then ran along quarter of a mile of corridors at Heathrow, through <laughs> customs and immigration, onto a motorcycle, yeah. into a jet ranger helicopter on the North Apron, 
from touchdown to lifting off in that helicopter took an amazing six minutes from leaving the aircraft. <laughs> I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah. And then he had a team of people who fixed the traffic lights. <laughs> do tell us about this do tell well, us because the helicopter well, dropped him off at waterloo bridge on a pontoon on the river and he got yeah. a simon snorkel crane to hoist him up onto the road level at waterbrew bridge when he then leapt onto the motorbike which is to take him to the post office tower that's right he went for the port of london authorities as i say and i think that uh thing on the river was part of that uh but he reckoned that in fact in retrospect that the crane that lifted him up was probably not necessary. It was very much slower than he did. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> it's good fun. Yeah. Uh, so what? tell us about the traffic lights, because this is amazing. Apparently, there was some kind of key that turned them all in his favour. Yes, I don't know. This is all the ground team were doing this. I, I was sitting on the aeroplane feeling a bit tired, so I could not speak for this. <laughs> you, could, you could read all about it in his, his uh, uh, video. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. Well, not everyone who's listening to this will have a chance of that. But I think, as I understand it, the Green Diamond Club, who are also obviously very well connected, do a lot of work for charity. Let's make that yes, absolutely yes. clear. I know yeah. you, you did put a lot of money into charity. Yeah. But somebody on the team knew somebody who had this magical key that would mm. go ahead of the motorbike or each each set of traffic lights, they could turn the traffic lights to green so that mm. so that ne ne no stage was Peter hampered by a red light between Waterloo Bridge uh, and the post office tower. I, <laughs> I believe that I believe that's right. Yeah. <laughs> you could never get away with that this this uh, time. No, and that, no. that journey, the journey from from Heathrow to the top of the post office tower was uh, 18 minutes. You can't yeah. get off the aeroplane inside 18 minutes. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Rob, did you get a sense of uh, the sort of nation buying into the whole oh, week of the race? Very much so. It's great fun. People have a lot of fun. It really gripped the nation. It was, it was fantastic. I wish we'd... Um... Which been around to sit. Well, my brother was around to sit. Much older than me. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I we I was at school right next door to Wisley Airfield, where a lot of the stuff was going on. So I heard all the noise, although I didn't see it an awful lot. But yeah, it was. It was a a race of real enterprise and bravado. Yeah. Some really intrepid uh, yeah. racers as well out there, particularly the light aircraft lot. But but um, just to go back to Peter's own efforts, um, he then thought by the end of the week that his time on your flight could be beaten. So he went again, didn't he? Yeah. And as you say, but he only managed to beat it by 56 seconds, but it was just enough for him to collect, actually not the prize he wanted to collect, which is the BOAC 5,000 pound prize for right. the scheduled airline, but he won the 4,000 pound subsonic <laughs> category prize uh, sponsored by Palmer. 4,000 pounds, by the way, is about six, 65,000 grand now. So it's a big prize. He got a very nice uh, trophy out of it as well, and 4,000 uh, pounds. You're right. They were the, the, I, I still think that, the, you know, because the two were so, the two races were so close in time, I still, yeah. you know, feel that, you know, we, we almost won it, but not quite. <laughs> well, I think, well, I think yeah, I you, did, you did pretty well. You did your job very well. Uh, uh, we, we, we had a lot of fun anyway. <laughs> Yeah. And did you go and celebrate afterwards? Was there, were there oh, parties yeah, I'm sure, to be I'm had? Sure, I'm sure, yeah, we had a big party a long time ago. <laughs> Can't possibly oh. talk about it. I know. <laughs> Rolf, I, I, we talked about this in our previous podcast, actually. Jez brought up the point that uh, Clement Freud, who was also a competitor, he went by an Aer Lingus flight. Uh, oh, did but he? Yeah. he he snitched on one of the RAF uh, efforts. It oh, was um, a WRIF 
Sergeant Heather Robinson. She was flying oh. on a 10 Squadron VC-10. Oh. She had to change her mode of transport in New York because what she'd put on our entry form wasn't available. And Clement okay. Freud spotted this and snitched on her. But in fact, her flight on her RAF VC-10 was actually a record time. And they beat Peter's oh, really? best time. So, But she was disqualified. <laughs> I didn't know yeah. that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so Peter has Clement Freud to, to thank for, for snitching yeah. on poor old Heather Robinson. But but Rothmans did still give her the prize because they did oh. do a fantastic a fantastic yeah. route across the, across the Atlantic. Yeah. Rolf, we talked about this a bit on, on the phone when we were chatting the other day. I, I was saying to you that the year this happened really was the end of an era for yeah. commercial <clears throat> aviation, 1969, because it was about to change forever, wasn't it? I mean, here we had all this pizzazz with the race, and it really was a fabulous way of marking that end because the wonderful Boeing 747 jumbo jet, which you also went on to fly, yeah. was just coming on stream, what, the following year, 1970, which yeah. made air travel affordable to the masses almost overnight. And because of the, the sheer capacity, the aircraft enabled the airlines to drive down ticket prices and, and flying was no longer the, the preserve of the, the rich, the elite, and it, it rather lost its gra- glamour. So, so big changes, really, from this moment on in, in commercial aviation. Yes, oh, indeed. Uh, the, the other thing, of course, the, the big change, I think I mentioned it to you, uh, mm. was uh, the terrorist thing. This is what brought in all the uh, security we have now. And this was started off, I think, by a, an episode called Dawson's Field. Does it yes. ring a bell? Uh, in when, Jordan. In Jordan, exactly. When they, uh, the Palestinian terrorist organization blew up three airliners, including one of our beloved BC-10s, uh, mm-hmm. And this made everybody realize suddenly that, that you couldn't simply let people onto aircraft anymore. You had to, uh, do, you know, uh, have some sort of security. Uh, so it was an end of an era in many ways. And as you say, 747 came in 1970, uh, and it's only just going out of service now for mm-hmm. uh, 50 years. Yeah, in, in a high tech industry to last for 50 years is astonishing. Yeah. Rolf, yeah. do you think that you were very lucky to fly in what was possibly a golden era of absolute aviation Absolutely. generally, but probably British aviation in particular? Yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, perhaps uh, if I'd been really choosy, maybe a little bit earlier, I don't know, but certainly uh, I wouldn't particularly want to do it now. <laughs> no, 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 you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> is, there anything, is there anything you didn't fly that you would have loved to have done? Uh... I did it well. I, when I left, uh, I left fairly early because uh, Lord King came in and offered us inducements, and I'd, <laughs> I'd had enough. And I also, uh, fortunately, had a very good uh, thing in the, in the pension scheme. So uh, at the age of forty-eight, I went off and did other things, and I spent years and years taking travel photos. And I'm a, I'm a travel freak actually, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I had a lot of fun on my own. I I prefer to be my own master as well. Uh, yeah. I don't particularly like being a member of a large, impersonal and very often very inefficient company. Uh, so I had a lot of fun uh, doing that. I did things like cruise lecturing on cruise liners, uh, mm. writing books. So, I, I, you know, since then, I've done what I want to do. And, uh, you know, I've never made a fortune, but I've, you know, kept going on it and had a good time. Well, that's amazing. I, I, I must, must ask you about your books because... Uh, Matt, Matt Chilton said to me, your son-in-law, that yeah. they, he's read them all. He said they're oh, absolutely brilliant. They're, they're sort of 
thrillers with a dash of history, romance, and humor. Always a bit of aviation in there and a smattering of sex. Right. Yeah, that, well, that, that's exactly what I try and do. Yeah, I have a lot of fun. I've done eight of them now. That's, uh, it's and, a great way uh, to live your life, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I try and do it. I call it easy read. I don't, I don't want to be too serious, but, uh, you, no. know, that, 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 you know, now that I, uh, I'm traveling, you know, I've been to most of the places I want to go to, and uh, I've got to the age now I don't want to, to, to slum it anymore. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, I, we, st we still travel a lot. We cruise a lot. I have done. Uh, oh. And uh, so I, I, I take photos. I've got 15,000 photos sitting on lifers. They they wow. earn a bit of money from time to time. Well, no, we, we've been fascinated, Rolf. Just, just to take this whole thing full circle again, uh, all the adventures you've had, mostly within aviation, where does the air race rank as one of the great adventures, do you think? Oh, pretty high up, pretty high up. Uh, I, I, you know, I've had a lot of you know, a lot of high spots, I think. But, uh, oh, yes, I mean, it would take too long to mention all of them. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think one of my other ones was I took a, a trip on my own to East Germany before the wall came down uh, to the old DDR, as it's called, Stasi land. Yes. Absolutely yes. fascinating. Uh, mm. uh, that, that and air race. What else? What else? Oh, I know the other one. We drove around Australia for three months. Uh, that was fantastic. We bought a car in Perth and finished up <laughs> in Sydney three months later. Fantastic. That was fantastic. Wonderful. What I really wanted you to say was, yeah, the air race was the best thing I've ever done. It could never be repeated. <laughs> and then we go on. That would have let you gone home. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We've got to keep. We're going to keep going until you say that the air race is the best thing. That's uh, uh, the air. The air race is the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> that, and that's, that's a wrap. Come on, wrap. Yeah. <laughs> done in North a journalist. You should be better than that. Yeah. <laughs> Just before we let you go. Uh, I've got to ask you this. In the RAF, you went from tiger moths to meteors. Commercially, you went from VC-10s to the Queen of the Sky 747. What was your favourite? Uh, let me just put a, a, a little fill your gap in, because I didn't go straight from tiger moths to meteors. Uh, we, the, the initial fire school was on chipmunks. Oh, lovely. Oh, lovely. And, and then the, the wings course, the actual course where, where the main training took place, was a thing called an airspeed Oxford. Have you heard of an Oxford? Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, it, it was uh, really built to train bomber pilots, mm. and you couldn't do aerobatic twin engine. Uh, you know, it was slower. That was that was fine. By least uh, uh, I flew an Anson once very briefly. I hated it. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it flew like a sack of potatoes, but that was only very very briefly. But but essentially, I only flew Tiger Moths, Chipmunks, uh, Oxfords, Meteors, uh, VC tens. Britannia, uh, Britannia VC-10s and 747s, and they were all nice. They were all nice to fly, even the Britannia. Very, very nice mm. to fly. Oh, yeah. oh, wonderful, Rolf. Thank you so much for your stories, Rolf. They're absolutely wonderful, and we're all going to be ordering your books for Christmas, <laughs> so you can expect a big jump in sales. Yeah, and uh, we're really grateful, uh, Rolf. So good to hear your stories. Thank you so well, much. Well, it's thank been you, great Rolf. fun for me. Well, thank, thank you for, all, for inviting me. A huge thanks to Rolf Richardson. Do look out for his books and his pictures as well. <laughs> and by the way, if you haven't already heard them, do listen to our main podcast episode about the Daily Mail air race, along with the full interview 
with Peter Goddard. And our next episode will feature another race competitor, Graham Williams, who flew one of the two RAF Harriers, although we'll be quizzing him more fully on his life as a Cold War jet pilot. He's flown everything. And remember, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Top Landing Gear. And do email us with your comments and questions for our expert, James Cartner, info at toplandinggear.com. That's info at toplandinggear.com. Two Gs. Thank you, James. Thank you. Thank you, gents. And however you're listening to us, please recommend us to your friends and family. Do leave a review, especially if you've enjoyed it. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening and bye for now. This is Top Landing Gear.